I think that might be my favorite. <laughs> Good morning. As Daniel said, my name is Josh Reed. Um, and I'll be preaching today from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. Uh, we're going old school. We don't have any PowerPoint, so I hope you brought your Bibles with you. If not, look on your neighbors or maybe your U version on your app on your iPhone or something. <laughs> um, married to the lovely Jacelyn. Is not present today because of the women's retreat. You know, can I praise God for Titus two women? Amen. Because uh, I talked to Jason last night and she was just oozing Jesus. I'm like, man, we need this like it all the time. You know, <laughs> I hate the times that we're apart, but these times really serve as times of refreshing uh, for our wives. So for Blair and many of the other women who lead uh, the women in our church, thank you. Thank you for doing this for our wives. God has graciously given us four children and another on the way. Praise the Lord. <laughs> um, they are definitely evidence of God's grace in our life. And uh, by God's grace, we are current members of the church planning residency, as Daniel said, this year at North Wake. And we lead a small group that really isn't that small. So it's an incredible privilege uh, to stand before you today um, and preach the word of God to you and for you. I cannot explain to you how incredibly uh, amazing it has been the last three and a half, four years in shaping to sit under the teaching of such Christ-centered worship, uh, wisdom from the elders here at North Wake, and teachers such as George and Noah and Ben. Um, each of these men longed to see Christ formed in us uh, and preach in such a way that by the grace of God that is happening each week. Um, so to still a line from my cousin John, I feel like a Volkswagen bug in a NASCAR race uh, this morning, preaching on the hills of these guys. <laughs> but praise the Lord, though, that the feast we're coming to this morning will not ultimately be nourishing because of a man's eloquence, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit as he and he alone illumines our hearts to behold the Christ. The word of the Lord stands forever. Two weeks ago, Pastor Larry gave a great illustration involving rubber bands. I don't know if you remember, he was trying to sh hit people back there when he was trying to shoot them. Uh, to shoot rubber bands further, you had to get the tension right, he said. You had to get the tension right. And the illustration served to highlight the tensions in the scripture regarding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And we saw in that portion that Moses was taking precautions not to put too much tension on Israel's side. For if you put, if you get this wrong, remember he said, you're dead meat. Well, this passage today is building off that narrative point, the narrative portions of chapter 9 and 10. Uh, and this section of scripture serves to give some conclusions about who God is and what his people should do. So in sweeping rich language, Moses brings his sermon to a crescendo of magnificent proportions because this is what Deuteronomy is. It's, it's sermons to exhort Israel as they are entering into the promised land. Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 through 22 incorporates as much of the message of the book as it can in 11 verses. Enough so that one commentator has said that this is a mini symphony of faith and life. Memorize this passage and you'll have a good handle, not only on Deuteronomy, but the whole Old Testament. But this passage is more than mere information. 
This passage brings the worshiper to a point of decision. Repentance and love are the commands, and as we'll see, there's ample reason why this is a proper response to beholding the worth and work of God. This is true of the second generation of Israelites standing on the plains of Moab in 1400 BC, and it's true of the church today in 2012 AD. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray, O oh God, that above all that happens today, your name would be revered. Father, each of us are weak and frail and in desperate need of divine grace this morning. God, just looking back over the past week of my life, I'm so grateful to hear the words from Psalm 30 proclaimed today that if you were to count iniquities, if you were to mark them, God, who could stand? God, praise you. We praise you this morning that with you there is forgiveness, that you might be feared. We pray that you would now take your word and explode it into each of our hearts. We pray that you would comfort the brokenhearted this morning, that you would grant wisdom to the foolish, that you would draw in the wayward, assure the doubting, heal the sick, and humble the proud. God, grant us eyes to see in hearts that long for Christ, in whom we can have life, and life more abundant. We pray that your spirit would make it so for your glory and our good. It's in his good name we pray, amen. So as we come to this passage, I wanna point out two things as we read through it real quick. Uh, number one, I want you to see that in this passage there's an immediacy or an urgency for Moses' declarations and commands. At least four times in these 11 verses, he's pressing them to decision, and he uses the words now, today, this day, and this is important because this is, this is for us too. When we see these words, it's not just for Israel then, this is for us today too. He's pushing us to obedience today and to make a decision. The other thing I wanna point out is the phrase, the Lord your God. Seven times in 11 verses here, he says, the Lord your God. In the first 10 chapters of Deuteronomy, 80 times this phrase is used. In the whole book of Deuteronomy, 241 times this phrase is used. Moses is trying to get a point across, I think. The Lord, your God. Now, uh, I'm going to say the God of Israel or simply God, but when I say this, you're gonna know what I mean because I'm prompting you right now. This is the triune God who is the God of not only Israel, but of all creation, as we'll see in this passage. So let's read Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. 
Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So verses 12 and 13 here are a call to attention. They serve as a summation of the whole teaching of Deuteronomy. What does the Lord your God require of you? What a great question. It is one that we would serve well to ask ourselves often. Moses has been retelling Israel's narrative, but with a particular shape. Has it been resounding in your ears? God's graciousness and Israel's disobedience. God's graciousness and Israel's disobedience. God's covenant faithfulness and Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. And so Moses is now calling Israel to be Israel. The Israel God chose and rescued them to be. To display to the world who the one true God is, the realities of sin, and to mediate his blessing to all the nations. This is the Israel God has chosen, and Moses is calling them to be that. But for this to happen, they needed to keep covenant with God. You know how when you shine a light on a diamond, it fans out into an array of colors, in reds and pinks and greens and blues and yellows? Well, that's kind of how these two verses operate. For when the light of God's grace hits a man's heart, it should fan out this way. Fear God. Walk in all his ways. Love him. Serve him. To observe and keep his commandments. And so Moses is reminding them again that obedience is good for them. Obedience is good. It is good to obey. Y'all say that with me. It is good to obey. Say it with me. It's good to obey. It's good. It is good to obey. But not only for the reason of simply pleasing the lawgiver, though that would be completely sufficient in and of itself. Because it really does benefit the one who obeys. And it faithfully points others to the one in whom you trust. So Moses' transition out of telling Israel's story to what does God require of you now? And then look what he says. He says, behold, Behold, Moses is trying to get their attention. Whenever you see the word behold in the scriptures, the author's telling you to pay attention. Behold, he's trying to get our attention. Behold, drawing on Christopher Wright's commentary here, Moses then uses this fascinating literary technique to give two direct commands. The commands are found in verses 16 and 19. Verses 16 says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And in 19, it says, love the sojourner. These are the commands he's given. But look how he sets it up. In verses uh, 14, he's saying, behold. And he's about to say something great about God. And in verse 17, he does the same thing. He says, for the Lord your God. And he's about to say something great about God. And then in verses uh, 15 and 18, he does a surprising action of this God. So here, let me set it up. 14 and 17, he says something great about God. 
15 and 18, he says something surprising about this God and then the commands directly after that as a response to this. So this is the way Moses is setting this, this passage up. So let's first, and remember, this is a sermon. So he's seeking to motivate them to worship and obedience. So let's take a look at the first command, verses 14 through 16. The first command is to circumcise your heart and be no longer stubborn. Translation, repent. <laughs> repent. But let's look at seeing how he sets this up. Verse 14, to who? Behold to who? The Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and everything that is in it. Understand that in their day of age, lands were attributed to particular deities. Now, so for one land, a little g-god ruled over it, and for another land, another little g-god ruled over it. It's, it's, it's not unlike the way it is today, although the world is much more transient now than it was then. For in India, uh, in particular areas all over India, you'll have sections of the country that worship particular little g-gods, Ayepa, Sabramarla, uh, uh, Shiva and even though many in the country do worship multiple deities there's still there's still a uh, still a particular attachment you can see traces of it to a particular little G God to a particular land in many Arab countries Allah is worshipped in the Bhutan Buddha is worshipped and in here in America the little G gods of enlightenment power money and sex is worshipped and so what Moses is saying to Israel is this, behold the Lord your God's cosmic ownership. He owns it all. Not some little piece of land where he keeps the people in bondage through a works-based self-salvation uh, system like the little g-gods. No, 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 no. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It is all his. And so before Moses gives the command, he describes something great about God. But look at what else he does. Verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chosen their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Now, this is surprising. <clears throat> Moses has already done this in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, if you remember. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers. <clears throat> See, in Deuteronomy 7, the surprising element was the smallness of Israel in their election. But here is the greatness of God. And here's the other shocking factor. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 6, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. That's in view here. But here's how it's in view. Israel's life revolved around this statement, this faith statement. It woke up each morning proclaiming the Lord, the Lord your God is one. You're to love the Lord your God. They would do this morning and evening. 
But the amazing thing is, is the one that they were to set their hearts in love on, Moses tells them that God has set his heart on them. See, he's worthy for us to set our hearts on him. He's worthy for Israel to set their hearts on him, but they are completely unworthy for God to set his heart on them, and so are we. He is saying, behold, the Lord your God's amazing love. If you have tasted the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus, if you wrestle sin every day and know the fickleness of your own heart, and yet you are continually being compelled to press into Christ and follow him and love him, marvel at this. Marvel at this. Take time to look at the cross. Take long looks at the cross. Peer into the empty tomb and marvel at so great a love. This is what the writers of Hebrews or the preacher of Hebrews, however you see it, is doing to a group of believers struggling to maintain faithfulness to Christ. He says in chapter two, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, that is the giving of the law, proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The first step of drifting is failing to be amazed at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Marvel at the grace of God in Christ. So now Moses has shown them the greatness of God and he's given uh, them uh, expression to this surprising choosing of Israel. But instead of commendating them now, he loads up the cannon, lights the wick, and fires away at Israel. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, verse 16 says. Now, instead of being like, hey, guys, remember, you're, you're the circumcision. You're God's peoples. No, Moses instead goes after the one thing, the one thing that could remind Israel that the Lord is for them. Circumcision. There's a test at work here. There's a test here. And the, the test is, has circumcision led Israel to a humble confidence fueled by gratitude or a haughty arrogance fueled by self-worship? When you're given into temptation and sin, how do you respond? Do you presume upon his grace and think, well, of course, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. Or do you pridefully mope around in self-pity? Or do you humbly yet boldly come before the throne of grace and find mercy in your time of need as Christ pronounces his blood over your sin? But Moses' command here to circumcise their heart kind of gives us a dilemma. It presents a bit of a dilemma here. What's that dilemma? Well, how in the world is Israel going to circumcise their heart when they've shown time and time again as an unwill with an unwillingness to repent despite the mercy that God has continually showed them? Well, we can piece together this answer from what we've seen already in all of Deuteronomy or we can flip over to Deuteronomy 30 and do it real quick. Let's do that. Let's flip over to Deuteronomy 30 for the sake of time here. In verse 6, Deuteronomy 30 
verse 6 says this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. How amazing is God's patience? How amazing is God's mercy? Be amazed at the long suffering of God. For undergirding any obedience that Israel or you and I, for that matter, will ever have is a gracious promise from the Lord that he provides all that he requires. He provides all that he requires. And yet the command is there for Israel to circumcise their heart and it's here for us today too. Now how does he do that for me, you might ask? Well, by way of illustration, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famed prince of preachers, recounts his salvation experience. Let me read to you this. Spurgeon says, When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the truth? And the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, I thought, but then I asked, how did I come to pray? Well, I, came to, I was induced to prayer by reading the scriptures. Then how did I come to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he was the author of my faith. And so the doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. You see, for Israel, or anyone for that matter, to ever love and obey God, a heart change is needed. A heart change. And God's promise to give a new heart here in Deuteronomy 30 encouraged the saints throughout the next 1,400 years as Israel continued to rebel and was sent into exile. But see, God raised up prophets to remind Israel of his promise to give them this new heart. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. But it was another prophet, Isaiah, who showed them how they could lay hold of this new heart. The prophet Isaiah, in speaking to the exiles, told them that God has blotted out their transgressions and called them to repent and return to God. But how has God blotted out their transgressions? Well, Isaiah continues to tell of a wise servant who is high and exalted and who does something amazing. Isaiah says in chapter 53 that this servant, surely 
He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, it is in response to this great act of grace that Israel, and anyone for that matter, is reconciled to God. Behold the greatness and surprising action of God in Christ. And when we look on him with eyes of faith and believe that he died in our stead, we get a heart like his. One that longs to please God that has the law written on it. So that's the first round. That's the first round of the greatness of God, surprising action, and resulting obedience, which uh, Moses is saying you, you, you need to do, uh, which is circumcision of the heart. But now let's look at the second round in verses 17 through 19. Building on the first cluster, Moses now swings back into exalting God. In verse 17, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. You really can't get more superlative than these terms Moses is using. He's the God of gods, the Lord of lords. Whatever rulers and principalities exist in the spiritual realm are all subject to the God of Israel. Now remember, the culture at that time was extremely pluralistic, meaning that the majority of people at that time believed all religions, per se, were on equal terms. Now again, it's not much different than it is today, for it is quite popular these days for many to try to attempt to corner Christians um, for being irrational or intolerant due to the exclusivity of Christ in salvation. Perhaps some of you here are believing that Christianity is one way in the sea of many, um, but I would posit to you that Christian scripture does not make such concessions. Uh, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. Well, logically, you don't believe pluralism is truthful or tolerant anyway. I mean, think about it. For someone to blame Christianity as intolerant, it's quite hypocritical for whatever that person believes is intolerant of Christianity. Furthermore, if every way is a true path to God, then no way is a true path to God. Any cursory study on world religions would show a vast difference in the claims that each make to be reconciled to God or the gods that they espouse to worship. But I would go even further and say that the one true God is not inviting you merely to adhere to a philosophy of ideas or a set of statements. To be sure, Christianity has truth claims and there are certain truths that must be believed and trusted in order to be in fellowship with God. But I say with a contemporary of the apostles, Christianity is not a matter of persuading people of particular ideas, but inviting them to share in the greatness of Christ. And you can almost see that's exactly what Moses is trying to do here. He doesn't even have language adequate to praise God. He's stretching to try to give God due praise and inviting Israel to behold him and to love him and to obey him. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. 
the great, the mighty, the awesome God. The great, the mighty, the awesome. The King James says, a great God, a mighty, and a terrible. This is what the men of old used to describe as the awful majesty of God. Listen to this quote from William Grinnell. When I consider how the goodness of God is abused by the greatest part of mankind, I cannot, be of, I cannot but be of his mind that said, the greatest miracle in the world is God's patience and bounty to an ungrateful world. If a prince hath an enemy get into one of his towns, he doth not send them in provision, but lays close siege to the place and does what he can to starve them. But the great God that could wink all his enemies into destruction bears with them and is at daily cost to maintain them. Well may he command us to bless them that curse us, who himself does good to the evil and unthankful. But think not, sinners, that you shall escape thus. God's mill goes slow, but grinds small. The more admirable his patience and bounty now is, the more dreadful and unsupportable will that fury be which arises out of his abused goodness. Nothing smoother than the sea, yet when stirred into a tempest, nothing rages more. Nothing so sweet as the patience and goodness of God and nothing so terrible as his wrath when it takes fire. Moses is praising God's moral character here. He is trustworthy because he's not two-faced. You know exactly where you stand with God. He is not partial and he takes no bribe. He hates sin and there is no bargaining with him. Not even Israel, his chosen vessel. Now I know we've talked about election a lot in this series, but this is an important guardrail when thinking about election. This understanding of God's impartiality helps us to see that even in God's choosing of Israel, they are not outside of God's judgment just as the world is not cut off from his mercy. God's holy justice must be satisfied for each. Behold, the Lord your God's radical holiness. And yet, in continuing to highlight God's moral character, in verse 18, Moses says something utterly surprising when we consider in light of who the recipients are of his mercy and grace. Christopher Wright notes that in some ancient Near Eastern royal texts, the exaltation of national gods, little g, is commonly followed by the exaltation of the royal household. So it was human kings who basted in the reflected glory of the ruling gods. Little g gods exalt the rich, the powerful, the wealthy, because it's worldly pride that perpetuates their existence. Yet who receives the one true God's loving beneficence? Look at verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing. 
the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner? Behold the Lord your God's far-reaching love. How contrary to the world is the character and actions of God? Shockingly, over against idol worship, through which bribery and injustice prevail, and is often in the favor of the rich, God cares for the loveless and actually makes tangible provision for them through his people to extend love to them. This flips the world on its head and affirms that true value, true value is not in what you have to offer, but in the very fact that you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of your creator. Your value is not in your job or lack thereof. Your value is uh, not in whether you are married or lack thereof. It's not in what you look like or don't look like. It's not in your gifts or talents or lack thereof. No, your value is not in what you have or what you know or who you don't know. The world gives value to these things. They give value to power and fame and wealth and comfort. But the foundation of true value is found in the very fact that you are made in the image of God. And yet, because everything is marred by sin, this image needs restoration. And that is exactly what Christ has come to do, to grant the restoration of the image of God inside each and one of us, to liberate us from ourselves. Think about this. Our culture particularly lives out of a different worldview than this. Our, our culture more and more seems to live out of the Darwinistic one that marginalizes the weak and vulnerable so that only the strong survive. Survival of the fittest. They teach this in our schools. Think about what is prevalent in our culture. Abortion. Euthanasia. Hundreds and thousands of orphans. The weak and vulnerable are not helped and celebrated. They're isolated, exploited, and even murdered for the sake of what? Power, fame, wealth, and comfort. And these lies slink into the church, often in the forms of a disturbing, unbiblical health and wealth message that says goofy stuff like, well, God helps those who help themselves. Really? That seems a bit different than what Deuteronomy 10 is saying in Isaiah 40, in James 1, etc., etc. God gives grace through salvation in Christ precisely to those who can't help themselves. The fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, Israel, and you and me. So the greatness of God and his superlativeness and his moral uprightness is displayed. His surprising action and who his love and care for is highlighted. And then the command, verse 19, love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Moses tells Israel to love the sojourner. Why? And Moses says, let me remind you, you too were sojourners in Egypt. You see, as they stand poised to enter into the land that God is graciously giving them to be the arena in which Israel is to display God and holiness and sin and justice to the rest of the world and invite them into it, the danger is, is a sense of self-achievement all too easily is tempted to creep in and enter their mind. Remember the tension Larry was talking about? You don't want to spill too far over one way. That temptation is always there for Israel to think that they've done something. But God says, remember 
what I've done for you. Because experiencing the grace of God fuels a deep, deep gratitude which expresses itself that in love that reflects God's character. And the way that looks here, Moses says, is love the sojourner. Love the sojourner. Well, who is the sojourner? Well, a sojourner simply is one who is displaced or does not have a settled home and is temporarily residing in another land. Also of note, a sojourner is one who does not have inheritance rights in the land. So remember, Israel is going into the gifted land and the temptation of achievement could lead to exploiting and ignoring these types of people, people who are sojourning for a season, uh, orphans, widows. They could be tempted to exploit them or even ignore them. But God would have none of that. God would have none of it. They are to love the sojourner. So, so who are the sojourners in our land? Well, I'm uh, sure we could have a lively debate on who a sojourner is, but I believe it's fair to say that one group of sojourners in our land are refugees from war-torn countries. Um, they are coming in mass amounts to the states to, to receive a, uh, uh, at least a peaceful existence in some capacity from, compared to where they're at. Maybe they've been forced out of their country. Uh, so how should this text then inform the way we think about and care for them? Or to broaden out a bit, what widows do you know? Or orphans? I've been pressed this week um, pretty hard on this. It's easy to love orphans, widows, and sojourners categorically. But God loves actual orphans and widows and sojourners, not categories. And he commands us to do that as well. Some good friends of mine who are members here at North Lake have been thinking about this for some time. Certainly, they desire to be overseas at some point in their lives, uh, to live and minister among the least reached. Uh, but while here, they wanted to do something about the flood of refugees that are coming to Raleigh in droves. But in having the privilege of praying for them and being a sounding board over the last year and a half, uh, two years, I've noticed something particularly from them. Their, their motivation is not, oh man, let's go help the refugees. Or their motivation's not, oh, I'd love to gain some good experience working with internationals while I'm here so that when I go there, I kind of have an idea of what I'm doing. No, you know what the motivation has been for, for this brother and sister? It's been reading and meditating on Scripture and seeing God's heart for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. And reflecting on the grace that God has shown them in rescuing Christ from the wrath due them for their sin. God has filled their hearts with love for the fatherless and the sojourner. Now, they will be the first to tell you that there are many days when they don't necessarily feel it <laughs> and often agonize, what's the best way to do this? How, how do we do this well? Um, but the bottom line is this. Um, they long to connect these refugees to this great story God is writing and connect them, more importantly, to the God who loves the sojourner and the orphan. Um, now, it's encouraging to know, at least I know, about eight to ten families here who have adopted. It's encouraging to know um, that there are others here who are working with refugees and, and widows. Now, if you would like more information on how to get involved in ministering to and loving 
um, some refugee families, there's a sign-up sheet out at the info table at the lobby and someone will get in touch with you. Um, but here's the command. Love the sojourner, Moses tell Israel. For you once were sojourners. Love the sojourner, North Wake. For you once were sojourners. When was I a sojourner, you might ask? Let's let the Apostle Paul remind us from his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, and then 19 through 22 is what I'm going to read. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Drop down to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer sojourners. Amen. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation, the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. Behold the work of Christ in bringing Gentiles near who had no inheritance in the land. Now back to Deuteronomy 10 as we draw to a close here. Verse 20, Moses' sermon culminates in a recapping, pleading command of that which God requires of Israel. Look what he says. He says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him and by his name you shall swear. And then as if a massive crescendo, look in verse 21. He is your praise. He is your God. What else do they have but God? How can you not praise so great a God? Who among the heavens is like you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. He owns the cosmos and yet loves the smallest of peoples. He is great, mighty, and terrible, and yet lovingly comes to the afflicted and most vulnerable in society. Now let us take Moses' literary device of greatness of God, surprising action, and resulting obedience, and apply it to the Christ. God, who is infinitely holy and righteous, completely self-sufficient, chose to become a man to kill sin and death and redeem a people to himself. Christ's perfect obedience flowed from his perfect heart. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And yet he went to the cross to die, not for his sin, but for yours and mine and for the sin of the world. You see, on the cross, God's justice, his radical holiness, is most clearly seen when he poured out his wrath for sin on Christ, satisfying the righteous requirement God demands of sin. And yet God's love is most clearly seen at the cross when he gave his life as a ransom for all who would turn to him with the eyes of faith and behold the Savior. Charles Wesley has a hymn that says, 
um, from Depths of Mercy is the name of the hymn. And there's a verse in there. It's my favorite verse of every song. It says, Jesus speaks and pleads his blood. He disarms the wrath of God. Now my Father's mercies move. Justice lingers into love. Obedience is a loving response to a loving God. Repentance, loving the sojourner in all of life for that matter is an act of worship. For us here today, we must behold this glorious Christ and we are to respond in loving, faithful obedience to the worth and work of God in Christ. Now the song we're about to sing is the song that uh, Daniel and the folks just taught us. It's a response it's a song birthed from this series. It's, a, it's about obedience flowing from a heart of love. It is true that if you have an obedience problem, you have a love problem. Loving God will always lead to loving others, including the sojourner. So let me ask you, what areas of conviction has the Spirit awakened in your heart? Respond as the Spirit leads. If you are here today and have never responded to Christ, through faith and repentance and experience the new heart which we've discussed, do not delay. God's wrath burns hot against sin. May Christ's death and life be yours today. And for all in here, circumcise your heart and be no longer stubborn. Fully trusting that it is God who is circumcising your heart to love him and to love the sojourner. Look to Christ who has brought you into fellowship with not only other believing Gentiles and not only other believing Jews, but with the triune God himself. For he is your praise. He is your God. Let's pray. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We thank you, God. We thank you for your word that says you provide all that you require. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we see you, we will be like you. The only way we can love is because you've loved us first. Help us to obey in loving response to your great love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.